0: This morning it is our joy to return once again to the Word of God and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 as we continue to journey our way through the history of the early church as the inspired writer has described it, Dr. Luke. And this morning I've entitled my discourse to you horror and hope at sea. And actually this will be part one of a two part series. I will be heading for Siberia this Wednesday and I'll be gone for a few weeks. And then when I return we'll do part two. And so I'll review a little bit of this for you, but there's just way too much to get into one discourse Let me give you a bit of the context before we look at the text, okay? Finally, after being held under house arrest for over two years in Caesarea, the Apostle Paul is being sent to Rome to stand before Caesar, to whom he has appealed. You will recall now he has been falsely accused by his kinsmen, the Jews, those who hate him because of his love for Christ and his proclamation of the gospel. And likewise, two governors, two Roman governors and one king have heard his testimony and and have agreed that he has done nothing even worthy of imprisonment. Yet in order to appease the Jews and to avoid a riot, they have kept him in prison. You know, history is filled with a myriad of similar examples of injustice and persecution against God's appointed spokesman and against those who love and serve him. And frankly, if it were not for the laws of our land, we would be similarly treated. And rapidly, those laws are being replaced to favor those who hate Christ and hate his chosen servants. But dear friends, may I remind you and encourage you that this is the way that it's going to be until Christ returns. When he returns to snatch away his bride, the church, and then after the tribulation where the wrath of God is poured out upon a wicked world, he is going to establish his promised messianic millennial kingdom on earth. And that will precede the eternal kingdom. A time when, according to numerous texts of Scripture, the Lord will restore the faithful remnant of Israel to their land. A time when He will defeat the enemies of Israel and protect them. It will be a time when Israel will enjoy great prosperity of many kinds. In fact, it will be a time when the city of Jerusalem... That is now in such disarray will rise to world preeminence and Israel will literally be the center of world attention. Israel's mission in the kingdom will be to glorify the Lord and peace will prevail under the rule of the Prince of Peace, our coming Savior. That time when the King of Kings will judge overt sin in his kingdom and even the Gentiles will be blessed through the channel of faithful Israel. But, dear friends, until that day, there will be no peace. There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace establishes it upon the earth. And in our text this morning, we are going to see four things that I believe the Holy Spirit intends for us to examine and meditate upon. Let me give them to you. They're just kind of a general overview And then I'm going to give you eight points of a little outline that'll just kind of help you go with me through this amazing passage of of passage of Scripture. First, we're going to see once again the ravages of sin. The curse upon the earth as it affects men as well as God's creation. The curse of divine judgment that has drastically affected For example, men, and this morning we're going to witness that as we see men who are filled with injustice and ignorance and foolishness and selfishness, recklessness and violence. We're also going to see that in nature where we are going to witness the the unpredictable and frankly unstoppable violence of a storm that will plague 276 sailors soldiers, passengers, and prisoners, and take them to the very gate of death. Secondly, as we look at the text, we are going to witness the ever-present hand of an omnipotent and merciful God as he reaches down to tenderly rescue both saints and sinners. Thirdly, we're going to examine the amazing, detailed accuracy of this historical account pertaining to things like geography and and navigation, as well as the historical context, which gives us further validation and confirmation of that which we know to be true, and that is the Scripture's repeated claim to be the very Word of God, the inspired, infallible record of divine disclosure and divine revelation, And then fourthly, and this is going to be a subordinate theme that will emerge from this text, but one that is in some ways obscured by the gripping tale of this violent storm at sea, but nonetheless one that deserves our attention. And that's namely going to be the stunning leadership role of the Lord's servant and prisoner, the Apostle Paul. And that's what we'll examine when I come back with you. So before we look at that leadership role, let's examine, on these, uh, examine these other three overarching ideas that emerge from the text as we look at this harrowing adventure at sea. I want you to try to leave this sanctuary and come with me. As we go on this journey, as we try to place ourselves as best we can within the confines of our imagination and my feeble ability to communicate these truths. And somehow go with the Apostle Paul and Luke and Aristarchus as we go on this journey. One filled with both horror and hope. As I said, I'm going to give you eight headings to kind of give us an outline to help organize The flow and the first one is we're going to see here the journey from Caesarea to Fair Havens in the first eight verses. The journey from Caesarea to Fair Havens. Verse one of chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Notice we there. It means that Luke has joined them. They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius so here we see that this centurion, Julius, served the emperor, and perhaps he was overseeing shipping and had even other special duties uh, like handling prisoners. We're not sure completely. Verse two, and embarking in, and embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now, Adramidium was a port located in the northwest, off the northwest coast of Asia Minor near Troas. And certainly their plan here now is to make their way to this port and then from there board another ship, as we're going to see a grain ship that will be headed towards Italy. And you notice that they're accompanied by Aristarchus. You will remember now. This is Paul's faithful friend. We were introduced to him in Acts 19. You remember the riot in Ephesus when the pagans rushed into the theater and they dragged Aristarchus and, and Gaius out of the theater because they thought that they were dishonoring their their wonderful goddess Artemis. And we also remember that he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem when they brought the benevolence offering from the Gentile churches, as we read in Acts 20. And we're also going to see that Aristarchus will eventually become a fellow prisoner with Paul in Rome, as we read in Colossians 4. So here you have it, Luke and Aristarchus and Paul board this ship. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So Sidon now is about 75 miles north of Caesarea. It was interesting here to note that this was um, a church there. And because we know that there's believers here that are going to care for Paul, and they were probably founded by many people who fled during that time of the martyrdom of, of, of Stephen. And I find it interesting here now The great persecutor of the saints is going to come and be a preacher to the saints and fellowship with them. You know, only God can pull something like that off. What an amazing reality. How interesting also, as we look at this text, now think about this, to see a centurion showing such consideration and trust in Paul. Obviously, he had respect for him. I'm sure that that he was aware of who Paul was, because this guy was absolutely notorious during this age. And I'm sure he had interviewed him. He knew his story. But as we can see here, he obviously trusted Paul because, as the text says, that that um, he had consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Now, if Paul would have escaped, the centurion would have paid for it with his life. There was a great deal of trust here. And Paul had probably shown him great kindness. I'm sure that he did And, and shared, I'm sure, even the love of Christ with them. Paul never missed an opportunity to share the gospel and to speak truth. And he probably told him that the Lord himself has said, you're going to go to Rome and so we see the centurion here letting him go and receive care there at Sidon. We don't know what kind of care it was. They had traveled now seven seventy miles. It might have been seasickness. That was always a problem and certainly a problem with me when I board some vessel at sea. Maybe he had other physical problems. Maybe he needed clothing or other supplies. We don't know. The scripture simply doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that whatever care he needed, God provided Through the saints at Sidon. Now, from Sidon, we see they're going to make their way on to Cyprus. Verse 4. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. So we can see here that their ship now is beginning to struggle in difficult winds. And so the text tells us that they they sail between the mainland and the island of Cyprus to gain protection from the winds. The winds on uh, the the, on what would be called the lee side, which uh, would be that place of shelter from uh, the elements when the wind is blowing. Now, this would have been a frightening experience to have a storm uh, begin to emerge a bit with, with these winds blowing. If you've ever been at sea, you'll know what I'm talking about. And again, I'm sure the seasickness began to set in with many of them. And eventually they make their way to one of the major ports of the imperial grain fleet that we are aware of through other historical documents, and that was here at Myra of Lysia. Verse 6, there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. So this would have been a Roman ship that was part of the imperial fleet, um, one that would be going from or coming from Egypt, ultimately going to Italy. And this may suggest that the centurion was a uh, frumentarius, as they were called. This would be an officer uh, in charge of supervising the transport of grain, which, is, which was called fermentum. And so we see here that, that they board the ship, and then it says, when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmonae. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So because of the strong headwinds, we understand that they were, they could no longer go west, and so now they are forced to turn south and go towards the island of Crete. By the way, if you really want uh, to to get the full impact of this, and I wish I had a big map up here, you really need to read this with a map in front of you. But by the time they entered this bay at Fairhavens, I'm sure most everyone, including even the most seasoned seamen, would have been seriously ill with seasickness because of of the waves and the wind and very exhausted yet as we are going to see their troubles are just beginning but there was another problem that they were facing and that was winter you must understand from about mid-september to mid-november the mediterranean is a very unsafe place to be and any travel After that time is basically suicide. Winter storms in the open sea are always exceedingly violent. And unfortunately, Paul's ship now has lost much time because of the winds. And there's just no way that they're going to be able to make it to Rome until spring. So they're going to have to find a place to port during the winter. And as we will see, these conditions led to the second little heading that I would give you, and that would be a short-sighted decision, verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, that's, by the way, referring to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in late September or early October, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, and we get an idea here that it would have left them too exposed to the violent winds, so because of that, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, I find this intriguing as I look at the text to understand, and we're going to see that there's 276 passengers on board, to understand here that Paul has repeated access to the centurion. The ultimate person here in charge, and he is allowed to voice his opinion. Notice that the text says that um, that the captain of the ship, and that by what was being said by Paul, the idea that he's repeatedly warning them here. Think of all the powerful, ranking members of that ship. I mean, you, you you've got the the pilot, you you've got the the captain, you've got uh, the, the 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 sailors and the commanders. There, and yet a prisoner is given a voice. Isn't that a remarkable thing to note? But certainly he was no ordinary prisoner, and the centurion rightly discerned that. This, combined with the freedoms that he was given on shore, betray, I believe, a unique bond that had already developed between the Apostle Paul and Julius. Now, remember, too, Paul was an experienced traveler. He knew what he was talking about. We know that he has traversed these waters before. In fact, he has survived three shipwrecks, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25. So he knew full well the folly of traversing the treacherous seas there in the Mediterranean during the season of the year. But... In the providence of God, he is overruled. And, of course, Paul never really cared much for a democracy, so to speak. He spoke what he knew to be true, and he was overruled now, and they decide to risk traveling what will be about another 40 miles around the western side of Crete and hopefully to get to the port of Phoenix. Just to offer another note, I find it interesting here when you think about it. Since Paul had been assured by the Lord himself that he was going to go to Rome, you would kind of think that maybe he would be a little bit more daring. It's like, yeah, let's go for it. You know, I know I'm going to make it to Rome anyway, so, you know, know, we'll be all right. Moreover, he knew that he had powers that God had given him to perform signs and wonders. And he could have thought to himself, you know, if we do get in a little trouble, maybe by the power of God I can do something to preserve us. To save myself and others. But of course, Paul would never presume upon the grace of God, of a sovereign God. And I believe as you think about this, that his caution was motivated by his love for his fellow companions and the others on the ship he was more concerned for others than he was for himself i'm sure that paul had been witnessing to everybody that got near him and certainly julius trusted him and then he had his beloved brothers there with him luke and aristarchus and keep in mind now god has not yet made any guarantee to Paul for the safety of the others on the ship. Paul knew he was going to make it to Rome, but he, God had not said so as everybody else. And so out of compassion, he intercedes, I believe, on their behalf. But they foolishly choose to sail on. Notice what happens in verse 13. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. So, at first, we see that the winds seem to be in their favor, confirm, confirming, therefore, the wisdom of their choice to proceed. But soon they discover the folly of their judgment. And this brings us to our third heading, that is, of a sudden storm and loss of hope in verses 14 through 20. Verse 14, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Urochilo. Now, this is a hybrid term. It comes from um, a Greek word, "euros" that means east wind, combined with a Latin word, a Latin term, "akillo," which is north wind. And so this was a ferocious wind that literally came off of the mountains of Lebanon and blew cold air down on To the Mediterranean Sea. This, dear friends, was Paul's worst nightmare. And it would prove to be the same for everyone on board. Because now this made it utterly impossible to turn the ship northward toward Phoenix. Verse 15. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along running under the shelter of a small island called Claude, twenty That would be about 25 miles off of Crete. he says, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Now imagine, suddenly, literally, in uh, the scope of a few minutes, they find themselves utterly abandoned to the mercy of the sea. What a terrifying experience. I can imagine how panic began to grip the hearts of those on board. We see a reference here in verse 16 to the ship's boat. That would be the dinghy or sometimes called a skiff that would be towed behind the the ship. It'd be a a small boat, kind of a a lifeboat at times, a shuttle boat going from the ship to the shore and also a boat that would be used to make repairs on the ship. But it's now being kind of towed along and, and I'm sure... As we read the text here, we get the idea that it's, it's, it's basically almost submerged. It's just kind of dragging back there under the weight of the violent sea. And it says here, we were scarcely able to um, to get the ship's boat under control. And it indicates here with the word we that Luke and Aristarchus and Paul himself, everybody, is trying to pull this boat in. They're trying to hoist this thing uh, up onto the ship's Deck. Can you imagine the enormous weight of that boat trying to get it out of the water as the ship ebbs to and fro under the weight of the wind and the waves? Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. Now, this is a procedure that is sometimes called frapping, or it was in those days. You must understand that the hull of the ship was was made of tongue and groove boards large boards that were sealed with pitch and the constant pounding of of these fierce waves against that hull by the way inside of that hull would have been the colossal amount of cargo weight of all of the wheat and so this this massive force of the weight of the ship against The weight of the waves would eventually loosen those boards. And so they would they would use this procedure called frapping. And this is where they would just literally take enormous ropes and wrap around under the hull of the ship, bring them up the other side and then winch them together in such a way as to give additional support. Now, I might add, as you think about what is going on here and the violence of the storm, it's a miracle that no one has been swept overboard. There's been no loss of life here, especially in such a dangerous maneuver. No one has been crushed under the shifting weight of the cargo or broken rigging. There's no hypothermia, despite being soaked for days now with the waters of the sea. I'm sure they were chilled to the bone. But there was yet another grave danger. Notice in verse 17 it says, And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. Now this reference to Sirtis sometimes called the Sirtis Sands. And that was a shallow kind of underwater plateau just off the African coast west of Serene. This was a place that was filled with sandbars and jagged reefs. It was a veritable graveyard for ships. It was also a place where many thousands of people have over history lost their lives as their ships run aground in this particular area. And then the waves, especially in a storm, would take you with their enormous weight and push you down and smash you against the jagged rocks below. So, fearing that they might be blown into this death trap, they obviously struck sail or they they took down the sail. And of course, it would be impossible to fight such winds. Such winds would would tear a sail all to pieces and even splinter the mast. It could even help to capsize the ship. But they also, it says, let down the sea anchor and in this way, let themselves be driven along. Now, we're not completely sure what the sea anchor was, but we are quite certain from other historical accounts of of uh, seamen of those days that it wasn't like. You know, some big anchor like we would think of that would go down and grab hold of the bottom of the sea because you stop and think about that. If you were to do that and that thing were to grab hard and fast, it would tear off a part of the boat or might spin the boat around in such a way as to cause it to capsize. But rather, what we believe this was was some kind of of a device similar to what we might call a canvas parachute, that would be thrown over the side and it would fill up with water and serve as kind of a break to slow down the ship. Verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, beloved, think with me. Imagine being seasick and soaked. You're fatigued from days of No food. Your body is now weak and basically useless. Many of them, no doubt, had experienced the dreaded dry heaves and nausea that that just grips your, your guts with torturous cramps because of seasickness. And now it's time to get to work. All hands on deck. We've got to lighten the load of the ship. We've got to get that ship to ride higher on the water so that we can avoid getting dashed to pieces and being capsized by the monstrous waves and even ride higher, because many times what would happen is these ships would would ride up on a wave in the front of the ship, but the bottom would be down in a great valley and sometimes. The bottom of the ship could literally hit the bottom of the ocean and break the ship in half. And so they have to somehow maneuver the massive valleys of the swells. So what we have here is somewhat of a sandbag brigade. We've all seen that before. Some of us have been a part of that. They've got to get some of this wheat out of the hull, out onto the deck and into the sea. And so... They begin to jettison some of their cargo. And suddenly, as you think about it, all rank and all status is, is, is over with. It's like it doesn't matter who you are, we have got to have your help. And so everyone, whether a passenger, a prisoner, a, a, a soldier, a sailor, a commander, whatever, you all have to help. And even the tackle begins to go. Many of their tools, anything and everything to reduce the ship to basically nothing more than a huge lifeboat. Verse 20 And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, friends, what this text is telling us, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, what does that tell you? They're unable to navigate. They, they, they don't know where they're going. It, it, it's going to be pitch dark at night. What a terrifying ordeal. And it says many days. Now, we don't know for sure how many days as yet. But we know do know that the distance that they traveled would have, from from Crete and ultimately to Malta, where they're going to end up, was approximately 500 miles if it was a straight shot. And so by now we would estimate that they've been out there in this particular storm for about a week, week and a half. So now they're at the mercy of the sea. Imagine being helplessly adrift. Hope of survival is gradually disappearing. It would seem as though the only thing left would be to surrender to the sea. But... As we meditate upon this, we've got to remember something very important, and that is this. Who is it that controls the sea? It is a sovereign God who was in that day intimately aware of every fear, of every tear, of every prayer. And dear friends, we should never forget this as believers. Regardless of the storm, God is in control of it. God is in it. The psalmist says in Psalm 89, verse 6, Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? And then in verse 9, You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And also in Psalm 93, verse 4, More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And how thankful we are for those amazing truths. So we come to a fourth heading here. In verses 21 through 26. And that is the angelic visitation and hope restored. Verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food. Let me stop there. You see it's impossible to cook. When your ship is being tossed around like a, like a little toy. Plus people don't have an appetite. When they'd gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Let me pause here. I don't believe for one minute that Paul was trying to stick a feather in his hat, that he was trying to give them a hearty, I told you so. But rather, what he was trying to do is... Remind them of what has happened, what has transpired with respect to his discernment and his former advice so that there would be credibility to the statement that he's about to make. Verse 22, where he says, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying... Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Isn't it interesting? It's remarkable to me to think now as we see here the whole ship is listening to Paul. It's as though Paul is in charge. What an amazing thing. He's now offering hope to the hopeless Moreover, here we witness, dear friends, the the umbrella of divine mercy that protects even the ungodly whenever they are in close proximity to the godly. I shudder to think, for example, what will happen to this nation once the church is removed. When there's no more salt to preserve. When there is no more light to shine forth and give truth. And all that will be left will be the decay of demonic deception and darkness and debauchery. So he says, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that God, I believe I For I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I love that phrase, don't you? I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I just love that phrase. And we can apply that to so many things. Whatever God has said, we can take it to the bank. I believe that. Paul believed that. But we must run aground on an island, on a certain island. So, in other words, we're going to be saved here, but we're going to run aground. And as always, don't you see here that divine revelation produces confidence and hope? And that's what gives people courage. There is no hope apart from the Word of God. Indeed, the Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And obviously here we must understand that a God of grace was preparing the hearts of those that had been placed in this vessel. Preparing them to understand more fully who He was and the Christ that he offers to them as Savior and Lord. And no doubt some, maybe many of them, the text doesn't tell us, but maybe many of them came to a saving knowledge of Christ. I not it be great to be in heaven someday and to meet some of those who came to Christ as a result of this storm? A fifth heading now, selfishness and the rejection of truth here in verse 27 through 29. Let me read this and make some comments to you. But when the 14th night, now can you imagine that the 14th night had come as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea? By the way, that was uh, the Sea of Adria. It was a reference uh, in those days to the, the south central part of the Mediterranean Sea. As we were driven, driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Now, let me pause here for, for a moment. At midnight, okay, it, it, it's pitch black. Other people are trying to somehow hang on and get some, get, get some rest, and they're, they're exhausted. But these sailors now are going to surmise that maybe they were approaching some land. So look what begins to happen here. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. That would be about 120 feet. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms, which would be 90 feet. So, in other words, they're getting closer to to some shoreline. Now, look at verse 29. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And as the sailors were trying to escape, From the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. So here's what's going on. These sailors now in the middle of the night are thinking, you know what? This ship is about to be dashed to pieces. We better get out of here while the getting's good. There's only one boat. You know, let's take advantage of it here. And under the pretense of going out and doing some more work here, uh, laying out anchors from the bow of the ship, we see them preparing to escape. And somehow, in the providence of God, we, we don't know from Scripture here, somehow... Paul was vigilant. He saw what was going on and he blew the whistle. You see, you must understand that, that the selfish, um, treacherous, uh, perfidious actions of, of these sailors would have jeopardized everyone because the ship really needed these men to help because they were the only ones that could really cause the ship to function as it should. And as I think about it, every man who rejects the revelation of God, as these men did, are somehow convinced that they have a better plan. Think about that. I mean, now the Apostle Paul has come up and said, here's what God has said. The ship's going to run aground, but we're all going to be saved. And in their minds, they're thinking, I don't buy it. I've got a better plan. I'm going to pretend like we're doing a few things. We're going to slip down in the ship and we're going to get out of here and let the rest of them perish. You know, everybody's convinced that they have a better plan than God's plan, one in which they are in control, not God. But by God's grace, we see that their plan was thwarted. And this was such an act of mercy, ultimately saving not only the lives of those of of, of those sailors, those selfish sailors and giving them another opportunity to believe and be saved from their sins, but also. A merciful God that would protect the rest of them. A sixth heading as we move along. Encouragement in the face of shipwreck. Beginning in verse 33. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Can you imagine that? Verse 34, Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged. Isn't that great? All of them were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. So now they're jettisoning the remaining cargo to get the ship to come up even higher in the sea so that you can get as, as close into shore as possible. They, they, they've cut the ship's boat away, the dinghy. They, they didn't want to have any further temptation here. So let's just get rid of this thing. And we're going to trust what this God has said to this man, Paul. And then our seventh little heading here is the shipwreck itself, beginning in verse 39. And when the day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach. And they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. In other words, let's get of anything that would encumber us. Let's put up the sails and let the wind just drive us right up on the shore. Verse 41, But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waters. Can you imagine that now? Suddenly the front of the ship is dug in. It is, it is, it is taking on water. It is hard and fast. And the waves are literally tearing up the rest of the boat. What does that tell you? You better get off and you better get off quick. And then finally, our eighth little heading here, safe at last, the promise fulfilled, beginning in verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. You see, the soldiers were afraid that some of the prisoners might escape and then they would pay for that with their own lives. But once again, we see in the providence of God, he moves upon this man who may have been a believer by now. We don't know, but probably was not. And he, for the sake of Paul, said, we're not going to do that. So it's kind of every man for himself. In his classic work, The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul, the 19th century British yachtsman, a man by the name of James Smith, confirmed the accuracy of this account. And he gives further testimony, therefore, to the infallibility of the Word of God. And F. F. Bruce, a great theologian, records some of Smith's detailed study. And I want to give you a portion of it here. Quote Smith relates, Bruce tells us, how he made careful inquiries of experienced Mediterranean navigators in order to ascertain the mean rate of drift of a ship of this kind laid to in such a gale. The conclusion which he reached was a mean drift of about 36 miles in 24 hours. So, in other words, in 24 hours, they're going to move about 36 miles. He went on to say, The soundings recorded in verse 28 indicate that the ship was passing Korah, a point off the east coast of Malta, on her way into St. Paul's Bay. But, according now to um, James Smith, the distance from Clodagh to the point of Cora is 476.6 miles, which at the rate as deduced from the information would take exactly 13 days, one hour and 21 minutes. End quote. Bruce went on to say, quoting Smith, The coincidence of the actual bearing of St. Paul's Bay from Clodagh and the direction in which a ship must have driven in order to avoid the certus, remember the certus sands, is, if possible, still more striking than that of the time actually consumed and the calculated time, quote. Bruce went on to say, then after carefully reckoning the direction of the ship's course from the direction of the wind, from the angle of the ship's head with the wind and from the leeway, Smith goes on, quote, hence According to these calculations, a ship starting late in the evening from Clawda would, by midnight on the 14th day, be less than three miles from the entrance of St. Paul's Bay. That, by the way, is the bay they believe that the ship went into. I admit, Smith went on to say, that a coincidence so very close as this is to a certain extent accidental. But it is an accident which could not have happened had there been any inaccuracy on the part of the author of the narrative with regard to the numerous incidents upon which the calculations are founded. Or had the ship been wrecked anywhere but at Malta, for there is no other place agreeing either in name or description within the limits to which we are tied down by calculations founded upon the narrative, end quote. So Beloved, again, here we see the amazing detailed accuracy of this historical account, confirming once again the truth of the inspired record. But may I remind you again, dear Christians, when, when, when you read such an amazing account, don't, don't let the, the story, as remarkable as it is, obscure the purpose for which it is written. God didn't put this in to entertain us. This isn't kind of a a bedtime story here, even though it is very fascinating. But again, as I said earlier, it reminds us of the ravages of a sin as sin affects both men and creation under the curse. It also gives witness to the ever-present hand of an omnipotent, sovereign God who is in charge of even the seas. To tenderly rescue both saints as well as sinners. And it also, beloved, gives us great comfort, doesn't it? That we serve the very God of this particular scenario. We serve and we love and we are protected by the same omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, merciful and faithful God as rescued Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and all of the rest. And he is the one that will continue to do the same for us according to his will. I know many of you have read my father's story that gives testimony to his shipwreck at sea for those four and a half days after his ship was sunk, the USS Indianapolis, in World War II, and certainly he can give testimony. To this very thing that God is even in control of that which occurs in the sea. And we can be comforted knowing that even though many of us have not experienced that type of thing at sea, we have experienced the great tumults of suffering in our life. And God is in control of all of that. And we rejoice in that, even in severe gale force winds of trial and testing. God is in control. And I'm reminded with what the psalmist said in Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23, and I close with this. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, Which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank You for the challenge that we receive from Your Word. Even as we think about what you did in this this incredible ordeal at sea, we praise you for being a sovereign God, an almighty God, an omniscient God, one that works all things after the counsel of your will. Lord, I pray that these great truths will remain with us in the gale force winds that we will experience as we live out our lives, as we continue to experience those things in a fallen world that remind us of the curse upon both your creation as well as we having the first fruits of the Spirit that groan inwardly. Lord, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. I pray especially for those that do not know You as Savior. Oh, Lord, how I pray that conviction will steal over their hearts in such a way as to bring them to their knees and cry out for the mercy that You will so quickly give them. We pray all of these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.